And for those who were clever and kept the place, we're looking today at Nahum, the book of Nahum. This is the fourth in my series, which I entitled Majoring on the Miners, on the Minor Prophets. We have dealt with Habakkuk, the prophet who never preached. We have looked at Amos, the prophet who wasn't a prophet, who said, I'm not a prophet, neither am I the son of a prophet. There's Micah, the prophet of the kingdom. And today, we're going to have a look at Nahum. It's a little book, three chapters. I timed it. You can read Nahum in about seven minutes. Right? Doesn't take long. And yet, within this is fascinating and intriguing stuff. You see, sometimes we bundle the minor prophets together. You know, that's just a bunch of those guys there. But they're all different. They all have a different message, a different angle, a different slant. And this guy, Nahum, interesting and fascinating. Before we go any further then, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask now that you might open our hearts and minds. Teach us, we pray, from the book, from your book. Have it to be special and meaningful to us and have our hearts to be lifted up towards you this day. In Jesus' name, amen. Nahum. Now, the first thing that's interesting about Nahum, and, and this is interesting enough that, that I thought we'll, we'll make this sort of the introduction, he's referred to in Nahum 1.1 as the, it's the book of the vision of Nahum, the Elkishite, which would mean he comes from a place called Ilkos. However, there is a very, very strong tradition that something happened to that place. And what happened was its name got changed. And its name got changed in honour of its most famous inhabitant. Right? Yeah, you think about it. What's another name for Bethlehem? The city of David. Ah, the place gets named after its most famous person. Gets known as that. And there is in northern Israel a place called the village of Nahum, which in Hebrew is pronounced Hafanacham. You think, well, you know, I, I've listened to all my, I've read my Bible, uh, seen my Bible maps, and I've never seen that place. Well, probably because you've never heard it pronounced by a Hebrew speaker. Because Kafanaham, when we get it and twist it round, is pronounced Capernaum. Capernaum. Yeah, that city right on the top of the, the Sea of Galilee, the home to Peter and James and, and John, that where Jesus did most of his ministry working from, its name literally means the village of Nahum. 
so, I'll put it to you that it's very likely that's where Nahum came from. And the place eventually got named after him. Now, in the Jewish Bible, see, we, we're, some, we, we were all looking for Nahum, weren't you? Go on, admit it. You didn't know where it was, so you were looking for it. And you said, oh, it's, it's between Micah and Habakkuk. Yeah, okay. That's not where it's found in the Jewish Bible. Yeah. In the Jewish Bible, in their, their, their scrolls, they put Nahum straight after Jonah. Jonah. Now, what separates Jonah and Nahum is about 150 years. Okay, that's what separates them. But what unites them is they're both concerned with the same place, with Nineveh. Okay, Nineveh. Nineveh was the capital city of Assyria. Where is Nineveh? You, would you like to go and visit Nineveh? You can. Did you know that a whole bunch of Australians visited Nineveh? They didn't know it. Because the remains of Nineveh are just outside and extend under the modern city of Mosul in Iraq. The Australian soldiers who served in the Iraq war in Mosul were treading on the grave of Nineveh. And you go, oh, I'd love to go and see the ruins. It's a heap. It's a mound. There's nothing left. Nineveh became so completely destroyed that when Alexander the Great marched his armies through there, he didn't even know there used to be a city. Nothing left. By 600 BC, Nineveh had fallen and there was nothing to show for it. Nineveh was so completely destroyed that for 2,000 years, the only place you would find mention of it was in the Bible. When people, when, when people read in the Bible about the great city of Nineveh, they went, what city? What city where? There's no such place. Because it was so completely and utterly destroyed that there was nothing left. And they built another town, Mosul, on top of it. Now, normally, you know, in, in the Bible, you find that they knock down a city and they rebuild another one on top of it, and they keep the, the same name? Not here. It was so completely destroyed that even the name was lost. So, consider for a moment the story of Jonah. Everybody knows the story of Jonah. In fact, that's one of the reasons why I won't be doing Jonah in my study of the minor prophets, because Let's face it, Jonah's been done. He's been done to death. He is better done than that fish, you know. That they, he, he's, 
yeah, I, I feel when when you you're picking books to to uh, to preach on, yeah, get a fork and stick it in Jonah because that that guy is done. But everybody knows the story, you know, Jonah running away, big fish, a storm, goes to Nineveh, preaches, everybody in Nineveh gets saved. Isn't that wonderful? Jonah has a hissy fit and complains to God that he really wasn't being fair. And God says, listen, I'll save who I'll save. And uh, it's none of your business who I extend my grace to. And so, you know, that's it. They all lived happily ever after. No. No, they didn't. Anybody who says they all lived happily ever after isn't listening to fairy tales. What happened to Nineveh? Well, we're not too sure exactly what happened immediately after. Perhaps the king died and a new king took over. But what happened within a hundred years, Nineveh was back to being as evil and rotten and mean as it ever was. I sometimes wonder, did the new king get a whole bunch of red helmets and put M-A-G-A -A on it? You know, make Assyria great again. Was that his, his idea? Because whatever he did, it took Assyria back into evil, violence, and idolatry. And so 150 years later, we have Nahum. And he prophesies against Assyria. But what's really important here, and what's really, really important to understand, when Jonah preached to, us, to, to Nineveh, he said, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown, and the people repented. From the, the king to the lowest in the streets, they all changed. They all said, we've got to get right with God, and we've got to do something to avert the destruction that is coming on us in forty days' time. There is no call to repentance in Nahum. No. There is no call to say to the people of Nineveh, repent, change. Don't be like your, your, the people around you. No, it's not there. What there is, is the announcement of coming judgment there is no hope handed out to Nineveh in fact verse 9 of chapter 1 says what do ye imagine against the Lord he will make an utter end affliction shall not rise up the second time the second time you had your chance Nineveh you were given your opportunity to repent. And this time, God is not going to let you go. There is judgment coming. 
judgment deferred, brethren, judgment deferred is not judgment denied. Judgment postponed is not judgment removed. Judgment delayed is not judgment forgotten. And eventually it caught up with Nineveh. The Babylonians took it in about 600 BC and just utterly destroyed it. They said, we will make sure this city never rises up again against us and utterly and totally destroyed the city. Do you want to see what the, the battle for Nineveh looks like? You read chapter 2 of Nahum. He talks about the, the death in the streets, how, how the heaps of bodies were there, how the chariots rolled down the, the, the streets, jostling each other and mowed down the people and destroyed the entire city. Now, what happened in Nineveh? Well, there's a description of what happened spiritually in Nineveh, but it's not a name. Look over in the book of Romans. In Romans... Chapter 1, verse 21. And chapter, Romans chapter 1, verse 21 says, Because that, when they knew God, remember, they'd repented at the preaching of, uh, of Jonah. So they knew God. They glorified him not as God. Neither were thankful. They didn't bother thanking God for the redemption that he'd given but were vain in their imaginations. Their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man and to birds and to four-footed beasts and creeping things. You know what this, the religious symbol of Nineveh was? A bull with eagle's wings and a man's head. Yeah, you'll see them in, the, in, in the, the statues and the reliefs there. The winged bull of Nineveh. They changed the glory of an uncorruptible God to an image made like a corruptible man with a man's head and birds that had eagle's wings and four-footed beasts, a bull. That's a description of what happened to Nineveh. They changed the image of the incorruptible God into an idol. So, so what happened? Well, God then judged them. Verse 32 of that chapter in Romans, it says, Knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. They changed the image of the God that Jonah had talked to them into a fantasy animal. Now there's a word for this. 
There's a special word for it. When the truth of God is turned and corruptible and corrupted, there's a special word for it. You, you know that every every organisation has has its own jargon. You ever notice that? And that they use words in special ways. So say when an engineer uses a word, he might not mean it in the same way as a, um, a, um, a philosopher might use a word. When a mechanic uses a word, he might mean it a different way to a computer engineer uses the same word. Because each, each organisation has words that mean specific things, right? Now, back when I was in Bible college, we, we had to do definitions of these sort of words, okay? And they gave us a great big list of these words and said, we want the biblical theological definition of these words. So I had to just do one after another and it got to be a bit of a, bit of a drag and, you know, defining these terms. And I remember talking to one of my friends and, and I said, how are you going on the word list? And... Uh, he said, oh, I'm, I'm uh, right in the middle of eternal judgment. And I said, oh, that's okay, because I'm just past redemption. So, you know, these words have particular meanings. Do you know what word we're looking for here? This word? When you take the truth of God and you deliberately, willingly, knowing the truth of it, turn from it, it's called apostasy that's what it means it means to know the truth of god to know that it is the truth of god and then refuse to accept and obey it that is apostasy and that is what happened to nineveh and that is why nahum it pronounces this judgment on them. Now, please understand, apostasy is not not knowing the truth. A person who does not know the truth cannot turn from the truth. Okay? So a person who, who hasn't really understood the gospel cannot turn from it because they don't know it. Nor is over time. I remember too, this, and this is, you know, it's in, in, to my mind interesting. I was talking about to an, an American who did not know much about the history of Australia and especially the religious history of Australia. And he said, can you sort of give me a rundown on who were the real uh, on-fire evangelical groups in, in Australia. And I said, well, if you look back to the oh, 1890s, 1900s, the real people there who were doing the work for God were the Low Church of England. That was the time that the Melbourne Bible Institute was established and became... An, uh, an unbelievable powerhouse for providing good, solid, Bible-believing preachers. Then, later on, the Church of Christ 
was for years a strong fundamental denomination. But they too moved away. Then later on, the open brethren were an absolute wonderful group of people who, who stood for God and stood for the things that were right. But last time I went to the town and the looked at the church where I got saved, it had shut and the weeds were growing around the outside and the building was starting to fall into disrepair. And then God raised up Baptist, non-denominational Baptist churches like this one. Do you know what will happen if churches like this fail to maintain the purity of the word of God? God will raise up someone else. Someone else to do his work. He will not leave himself without a witness, but denominations and groups and churches who do not hold the truth of God will be pushed away when they fall into apostasy. Where's the new one going to come from? I have no idea. But, for instance, do you know where the world's biggest Presbyterian church is? And you might go, oh, well, that'd be uh, Aberdeen or... or Glasgow or something like that. No, the world's biggest Presbyterian church is in Seoul, South Korea. Oh, will that be where God raises up his next group of people to witness, to bear witness for him? Who knows? But one thing is certain, God will not continue to use people who turn from his his word and his principles. Now, Nahum, chapter 1, verse 3, it says, The Lord is slow to anger. He is slow to anger. You can compare that across in, in Jonah. Jonah, chapter 4, verse 2, it says, uh, and he prayed to the Lord and said, I pray thee, O Lord, was this not my saying when I was yet in my country? Wherefore I fled before unto Tarshish, for I knew that thou art a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness, and repentest thee of the evil. God is slow to anger. In the book of Psalms, Psalm 103, Psalm 103, verse 8, it, said the, it says, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and plenteous in mercy. God is slow to anger. But as I remember one extremely dangerous person saying, do not mistake my gentleness for weakness. God is gentle. He is not weak. Do not mistake his gentleness for weakness. Do not mistake his forbearance for pacifism. His patience for a lack of care. God loves. God cares. He is very slow to anger. But these people in Nineveh had pushed him too far. 
How far are you pushing God? Are you pushing him a bit today? Are you going, yeah, well, he won't really notice that. He didn't uh, do anything when I did it last time, so he won't do anything when I do it this time, and I can do it a little bit more, just a bit more, just a bit more. Push, push, push. There's a, a concept in uh, Asia, I remember a, a Chinese person talking to me about it, called tweaking the tiger's tail. And that's where a little mouse or someone will reach out and just tweak, just nip the tail of a tiger. And the tiger does nothing and does nothing and does nothing because really it's not worth it. But then after a while, all of a sudden the tiger will whirl around and smack the who's ever doing it. And they look and they go, well, what did you do that for? Well, just because the tiger didn't do it the first time doesn't mean he won't do it the tenth. Are you tweaking the tiger's tail? Are you pushing God? Are you saying, no, no, I'll be right. God hasn't judged me yet. Those are dangerous sorts of words. In verse 7 of chapter 1, it says that the Lord is good. A stronghold in the day of trouble. He knoweth them that trust him. God is good. It's an interesting concept. We understand God is strong. God is mighty. God is righteous. But God is good. There's a line in C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe where the children ask one of the characters, is Aslan safe? Like a tame lion. And he's told, oh, no, no, no. He is not safe. But he is good. God, brethren, is not safe. But he is good. God is good. The last verse of the first two Psalms. Have a look at a back in, back in Psalms again. The first two Psalms. Book. The last verse of the first Psalm. For the Lord knoweth the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. In the second psalm, the last verse says, Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish from the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. Remember, the, look back again to uh, Nahum chapter 1 verse 7. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knoweth them that trust in him. There will be no second time for Nineveh. But God is good, and God does know them that trust in him. And he is safe. He is a stronghold. He is a place that you can rely on. Now, Nineveh is judged. Verse 9, why do you imagine things against the Lord 
you know, I, I keep feeling that Nahum read the first, uh, the book of Psalms, the first couple of Psalms when he was preparing this. Because when you look over in, remember we're back in the first chapter of Psalms? Verse 9 of Nahum 1, why do you imagine against the Lord? All right. And Psalm 2, 1 says, why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? I think he was reading Psalms when he was preparing his message. This message is why are you imagining emptiness against God? Why are you imagining that you are going to be something when his judgment comes upon you? You've rejected it once. You have turned from his truth. And now there is nothing left but judgment. And yet Nahum just can't resist. He can't help himself. And in verse, verse 15 of chapter 1, he says, Behold upon the mountains the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publisheth peace. That sound familiar? It should. It's almost exactly the same as Isaiah 52, 7, which is quoted in Romans 10, 15. Let's have a look at Romans 10, 15. He just can't help himself but to say, Romans 10, 15. How shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of priests, peach, that bring glad tidings of good things. You see, even in the midst of pronouncing doom upon Nineveh, Nahum couldn't help but say, you know, there is a gospel of peace for the individual. There is judgment come upon the city, upon the organization, upon the place. But for the individual, there remains still stretched out a hand of peace. And he says, how beautiful it is to hear words of peace in the midst of judgment. Then he says, interestingly, O Judah, keep thy solemn feasts, perform thy vows. Keep your feasts and perform your vows. Think about it. What made Judah, what made Israel, what made the Jewish people distinctive from the people around them? Well, they kept particular feasts. The Passover feast, which was talked about today. The Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Lights, Hanukkah, around about Christmas time. They kept their feasts. These made them distinctive. And Nahum is saying to the people of Israel, remain distinctive. Be different to the people around you. You remember probably when you were doing something particularly stupid, and your mother said to you, stop doing that. And you went, oh, everybody's doing it. And she said, I can, I can hear it, you know, echoing down through the, the decades. 
If everybody was jumping off a cliff, would you do the same thing? Nineveh was jumping off a cliff. And Nahum is saying to the people of Israel, don't do the same thing. Be distinctive. Keep your feasts. Keep your vows. The things you promised to do for God, do it. And do not fall into the, the same trap that's happening here. Be like God wants you. Publish peace. Bring good tidings. Keep the feasts. But you know the book of Nahum, book of Nahum is more than just a prediction of Assyria's downfall. There's more here. Right? Look at Nahum chapter 3. Nahum chapter 3 And I want you to look at Nahum chapter 3, verse 4. Well, let's read from 1 to 4. Woe to the bloody city! It is full of lies and robbery. The prey departeth not. The noise of a whip, the noise of the rattlings of the wheels and the prancing horses of the jumping chariots. The horsemen lifteth up both the bright sword and the glittering spear. There is a multitude of slain and the great number of carcasses there is none end of their corpses they stumble upon their corpses because of the multitude of the whoredoms of the well-favored harlot that's pretty harsh language the mistress of witchcrafts that selleth nations through her whoredoms and families through her witchcraft that's a description of this city it's the mistress of witchcraft and sells nations and families through her witchcraft. Right over to the back. Right over to the back of your Bible. Book of Revelation, chapter 18. Revelation 18, verse 1. And it reads... And after these things I saw another angel come down from heaven, having great power, and the earth with light, lightened with his glory. And he cried mightily with a strong voice, saying, Babylon is the great is fallen, is fallen, and has become the habitation of devils and the hold of every foul spirit and a cage of every unclean bird. For all the nations have drunk the wine of the wrath of her fornication, and the kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, and the merchants of the earth are waxed, waxed rich through the abundance of her delicacies. Now I want you to drop down to verse 12. And just notice the merchandise of Babylon. The merchandise of gold, of silver, of precious stones and of pearls, fine linen and purple and silk and scarlet and fine wood and all manner of vessels of ivory and all manner of vessels of most precious wood and of brass, of iron and marble, of cinnamon and odors and ointments and frankincense and wine and oil and fine flour, of wheat and beasts and sheep, of horses and chariots and slaves and the souls of men. 
Babylon the Great bought and sold the souls of men. Or will buy and sell the souls of men. But have a look back, you know, flip back to Nahum. What does it say here in verse in 3, 4? The mistress of witchcraft that selleth nations through her whoredoms and the families through her witchcraft. You see the destruction of Nineveh is a picture of the coming destruction of Babylon. The coming destruction of the apostate religion on the face of the earth will be judged and destroyed just as Nineveh was destroyed. Listen close and understand. As it is written, he that hath ears to hear, let him hear. Nineveh, pagan, idolatrous, evil, violent, is called to repentance for a season by the prophet Jonah. Slides back into evil, violence and false teaching turning its back on the living God, giving heed to fables and to witchcraft and is destroyed utterly. Western civilization, there's a contradiction in terms, pagan, idolatrous, evil and violent is called to repentance for a season by godly preachers and faithful proclaimers of the word of God. And it is currently sliding back into evil, violence and false teaching, turning its back on the gospel of Christ and giving heed to seducing spirits and the doctrines of devils. Can it hope for anything else but the coming judgment of God? Nineveh had its chance and threw it away. So many churches today have had their chance. Many more then. And now are throwing away the, the teaching of Christ. They have taken the, the truth of the gospel and have swapped it for falsehood and error. All that remains is judgment. You know, I, I'm, I'm teaching through the book of Genesis. And we've just finished teaching through the passage where Esau sells his birthright for a bowl of lentil stew. And he despised his birthright, thought it was worth nothing, walked away from it and forgot it. There are churches today, this Sunday morning, they have swapped their birthright as Christian churches for a bowl of liberal porridge instead of feasting on the riches of God, they've sold it out. All that remains is judgment. All that is left is judgment. 
the book of Hebrews. Book of Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 26. He says, For if we sin willfully, after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remains no more sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. For he that despised Moses, Lord, died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much sore a punishment suppose ye shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing and done despite unto the Spirit of grace. For we know him that hath said, Vengeance belongeth unto me. I will recompense, saith the Lord. And again, the Lord shall judge his people. For it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. There is judgment coming. There is, you know, apostasy cannot be cured. It must be judged. There is no call for repentance in Nahum. It's a proclamation of judgment. So what about that church in, that place in in, uh, Revelation? Well, back in Revelation 18, when the judgment is being pronounced on Babylon, In verse 4 of chapter 18, it says, And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, that ye be not partakers of her sins, and that ye receive not of her plagues. That's the message. It's no longer a message to the group. It's no longer a message to the denomination. It's no longer a message to the individual congregation. It's no longer a message to a nation. It's a message to individuals saying, get out. The same way that Lot sent angels to remove, or rather God sent angels to remove Lot from Sodom before the judgment fell, God says, get out because judgment is coming. God will judge those organizations. He will judge those places. And he says to the individuals, to his children, to his people, to those who want to be with him, for those who want to go to enjoy eternity with God, he says, get out. Get out. Go somewhere, anywhere. Flee to the mountains. Flee somewhere, but don't stay there. Because if you do, you know what will happen? Same thing that happened to Lot. Eventually, you'll start to get more and more and more and more and more like them. And God will have to reach down and rip you out of those places and those organizations because you've lost the ability to distinguish good from evil. The message from Nahum. There comes a time when compromise is not right. There comes a place where reform is no longer possible. 
there comes a place where Christians should not be. If you're in that place and that time and that situation, get out. Leave. Because God will judge that organization. And yet, how many times have I heard people say, oh, I want to I want to change them. I want to reform them. I want to improve them. You know, I am considered by some an old man. And I guess that is true. In all my years, I have never seen it happen. Never, ever, ever seen it happen. In all my reading of church history, I have never seen it happen. Even those who were known throughout history for the Reformation, their aim was not to start, you know, they didn't want to start new denominations. They wanted to reform from within. You know why they had to start new denominations? Because they got thrown out of the old ones. They tried to reform from within and didn't realize that, no, there was no place for reforming. They needed to get out. Now, the important thing to realize is you cannot be an apostate unless you have heard the truth, believed the truth, and then turned from the truth. If this is the first time you have heard the truth, then it hasn't happened to you. If this is the first time you realize that you need to be saved, that there is a judgment coming, and that God is calling for you to be plucked like a brand from the burning, I, I love that. It's a, a, a great image. You know, have you ever, ever been in a campfire and someone pulls a... Uh, a stick that's burning out of the fire. You ever seen how they put it out? They beat it on the ground, right? And the fire goes out. Is that what God's doing to you now? Has he pulled you out of the nice, warm, comfortable area that you're in? That he publishes peace? That he calls to you, be saved now, today. You've heard the message. You know the truth of it. There is a time to do, a time to get out, a time to, for action. God still calls even in the midst of judgment and says, come out, my people. God's calling to you today to come out of your sin and come to him. Now's the time to do it. There are two dangers here. One is to the individual and the other is to the group, but the, in, the group's too late. The individual now is called by God and saying, come while there is still time, while the God who is good and will keep all those who trust in him. I am 1-7. The Lord knows them that trust in him. He will keep them. Nahum 1-3. God is slow to anger but he will not acquit the wicked. Oh no, there is no, there is no uh, 
chance that God will pass over a second time. Remember that verse where he says, iniquity shall not arise a second time. Gave you a chance, Nineveh. Gave you a chance and you threw it away. Is God giving you a chance right now to be saved? To accept Christ as your saviour and realise you cannot save yourself? That you must turn in saving faith to Christ? There is a church full of people who want to tell you the good news of Jesus. And they're sitting all around you. There's a pastor down there who would just love to tell you how to get saved. To show you in the Bible how you can know for sure forever that you will be with God. There's a warning too. God will not quit the wicked. And he has pronounced judgment upon Nineveh. And it happened. God pronounced judgment on Nineveh and the place was so utterly destroyed no one could find it for 2,000 years. God has pronounced judgment upon apostate churches and they will be utterly destroyed and God will not acquit the wicked. But he loves, he loves to forgive the repentant. And God won't acquit those who do not come and repent. But if you will repent, there is forgiveness and there is time yet. But how much time? Who knows? One day, time's up and the judgment of God will fall. Repent and turn to him before it is everlastingly too late. Thank you.